It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We all love the feeling of a bank account full of money. We love the feeling of robust health. And we love it when all the noise, drama, and inconveniences of life are turned off and we can bask in a rare moment of peace. After all, we are human. And as humans, we crave comfort and we naturally disdain the uncomfortable. Hey, this is Eric. And in this episode, number 52 in my series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War II, I'm going to address the idea of self-sacrifice and how important it is to victory in this battle that we face as Christians. As you will witness in this message, World War II is crammed full of wonderful spiritual lessons that are very apropos to the Church of Jesus Christ today and in this hour of craziness. If you would like to take a listen to any of the 51 previous episodes in this powerful series, go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's head off to Washington, D.C. in May of 1943, where Winston Churchill is going to challenge the American mindset of me first and make an appeal to empty the Allied bank accounts, risk all health, accept all necessary dramas, and forsake all comforts to do that which is right. This one's called A Million Unused Soldiers. And this is in uh, our continuing saga of spiritual lessons from World War II. I think you're going to enjoy this. It's, it, we've been dealing with some very unique uh, themes in the body of Christ that all are very apropos today. Uh, the last message might have been one of the most unusual, uh, which was called The Old Lion, and just dealing with uh, Winston Churchill's sickness uh, in February of 1943 is an odd thing to focus in on. And yet, we sort of have a sickness as a church, and it's very similar to a pneumonia-like sickness, which is fascinating that coronavirus is an issue of the lungs. And so, it's just fascinating to, to just sort of revisit a thought like that, to think, you know what, we, we have the coronavirus in 2020. Uh, Churchill had, uh, bless you, Churchill had pneumonia in 1943, and there's a need for that growl of the old lion to rise up and to defy it right now. We must function as the church in this hour. And this one is going to dovetail with that well. Uh, we are in uh, the early months of 1943 as this is unfolding. Churchill did recover from his pneumonia. I hate to give away spoilers like that, but uh, he did recover. Uh, and, but it was a life-threatening thing for him, and he is going to actually get back on his feet. I mean, it just fits him. He, the guy's going to live for, I think, a couple more decades. I mean, he, he just lives into his 90s. He is one tough bird, and that's, in a sense, what I want to sponsor as far as an idea of the body of Christ today, too, that we would be described as one tough bird, even though I'm not sure that that's actually... I don't like eating tough birds, so, uh, but uh, we need to be rigorous for this battle. <clears throat> so here's Winston Churchill out of his memoirs of World War II. The reasons which led me to hasten to Washington once the decision in Africa was certain were serious. What should we do with our victory? Were its fruits to be gathered only in the Tunisian tip, or should we drive Italy out of the war and bring Turkey in on our side? These were fateful questions which could only be answered by a personal conference with the president. So if you remember that we were exploring the ideas in, in the message Casablanca 
of the church of Jesus Christ being able to work together because you have these allies which are not like each other, which is very similar to the body of Christ today. You have the Americans, you have the British, you have the French, but then the, the free French are going to sort of divide up into two camps too, the free French and then the real free French. And they're going to have their little squabbles and differences. And then you have Russia, Soviet Russia to throw in there. I mean, you, you have this very eclectic mix. And Casablanca is sort of going to represent that challenge of coming together to fight a common foe. And we as the body of Christ specialize in division, but we need to specialize in knowing how to rally around the standard of Jesus Christ, around that cross, and carry this message into this age and generation. And so we have walked through that. The allies have seen a massive victory in northern Africa. This is huge. This is going to be what uh, Churchill is going to call the hinge point of World War II. And from this point, up to that point, they lost every battle. From this point, uh, from the beginnings of 1943 onward, you're going to see victory, 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 victory from this point. And so now it's like, what do we do with this victory? How are we supposed to do that? Now, here's what's funny, is everyone disagrees again. So everyone is, they have their opinions of what they should do, and they're all going to land at least on something, but it's a hard landing. And so Churchill believes he needs to go to the United States. Now remember, he, he hasn't been healthy, so this is, he's one big trip after the next, but he feels he has to meet face-to-face. -face. Churchill is a face-to-face -face guy. And so over and over again, he's going to go on these grand adventures so he can meet face-to-face. -face. Churchill continues, at first the differences seemed insuperable, and it looked like a hopeless breach. Don't you like how I build the drama uh, here? Oh, no, now we have a hopeless breach again? Oh, it's just, I, I love to focus in on the challenges of World War II. I don't like to focus on just the victories. I want to focus on the challenges that they have. So what's next? Sicily, Sardinia, Italy, the coastlines of France, India, Burma. You have victory. It's the first time you've tasted this. Now, what do you do with this newfound strength? You have North Africa. All the Germans have been removed from North Africa. And so now the debate and the squabbles begin. And all these high uh, generals are, you know, have their opinion on the matter. This is a hard thing to figure out. And it's actually going to be the relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill that is actually going to bring about the order and the, uh, the peace and the harmony in this. They are so bonded together that even though the generals are gonna disagree, these two are gonna basically say, hey, guys, get out of the room. We've heard what you had to say. Now we're gonna make the decision together. It's very fascinating. They're able to pull it off. Uh, Churchill continues, Mr. Roosevelt asked me to open the discussion. According to the record, the essence of my thought was as follows. So this is a summary that Churchill gives of his uh, summary statement to the uh, military leaders of the United States of America and Great Britain on what Great Britain is going to propose as the key thoughts for the next step. How to work from victory unto victory. How do we take this uh, triumph of North Africa and leverage it to take out this evil in Europe and in the Pacific? We're, of course, as the church, we don't feel like we have victory. I feel like if we look around and we're like, oh boy, what, what, you know, loss, 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 loss. We do have a victory and we need to remember it. 
It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we need to reason from that victory afresh. And, but we oftentimes squabble about what the best way is to do it. And it, we, as a result, the body of Christ is splintered all over the place. Instead of us taking all of the strength and harness it and go, we're going after the toe of Italy. Instead, we're all over the place and we don't have the same strength that we would have as an allied force. So here's Churchill's summary. We should never forget that there were 185 German divisions on the Russian front. 185 divisions is so many, it's hard to fathom. Bless you. And so as a result, the Russians are taking the brunt of all the German strength right now. So this is what Churchill is saying. We should not forget that there are 185 German divisions on the Russian front. We had destroyed the German army in Africa, but soon we should not be in contact with them anywhere. The Russian effort was prodigious and placed us in their debt. The best way of taking the weight off of the Russian front in 1943 would be to get or knock Italy out of the war, thus forcing the Germans to send a large number of troops to hold down the Balkans. We had a large army and the Metropolitan Fighter Air Force in Great Britain. We had our finest and most experienced troops in the Mediterranean. The British alone had 13 divisions in Northwest Africa. Supposing that Sicily was completed by the end of August, what should these troops do between that time and the date in 1944, seven or eight months later, when the cross-channel operation might first be mounted? They could not possibly stand idle, and so long a period of apparent inaction would have a serious effect on Russia, who is bearing such a dis disproportionate weight. So Churchill, and this is uh, uh, the name of my, my message, A Million Unused Soldiers. It's actually more than that. It's a million and a half, but that didn't sound as good in the title. Uh, Great Britain has something to give. The United States is saying, let's bide our time. So Churchill has a, it's almost like an ethical dilemma within him as a leader. It's very fascinating to see how he's going to reason through this. And I like how he reasons through it. I mean, I get what the Americans are saying. It makes sense. And it's sort of like, let Russia fight its own war. Now, that's not the conclusion that everyone's going to come to, but it's definitely going to come out on the table. Let them fight their own war, and yet them fighting is actually helping us because we're after a common end. Even though Churchill and Roosevelt are not supportive of communism, they are supportive of eradicating this evil out of Europe. Hitler must go. This Nazi regime must go. So as a result, we need to support Russia. So if you look at this, not as communism, not as atheism, because Soviet Russia is not healthy. So you have to put on some different glasses here and look at them as an ally in a common battle, in a common war. And so we're sharing this and Churchill's burdened by this. He's like, they're taking the brunt of this. Our troops are now without a battle. And so when the Americans propose that, well, let's take our time and let's build up our resources and then strike here, 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 Churchill's saying, look, I can't let my soldiers stand idle. That when Russia's fighting right there and we have all this strength, we need to do something with it. So very interesting appeal that you're going to see him make. So they're going to decide, they're going to land on Sicily as the next attack point. But the appeal of, of Churchill is, okay, but say we wipe out uh, Sicily fast, which I think we will. Then what? Because we're going to have eight to ten months in here with your proposed next step. I, we have to do something. 
Roosevelt, we cannot sit idle. I have a million and a half trained men that are ready to do something to fight this evil. They cannot sit on their thumbs. Yeah, I like this. I don't know if you guys can feel where I'm going with this, but this is good stuff. So here's Winston Churchill again. After a serious crisis of opinions, side by side with the most agreeable personal relations between the professional men, an almost complete agreement was reached about invading Sicily. But although so much had gone well, I was extremely concerned that no definite recommendations had been made by the combined staffs to follow up the conquest of Sicily by the invasion of Italy. I knew that the American staff's mind had been turned to Sardinia. They thought that this should be the sole remaining objective for the mighty forces which were gathered in the Mediterranean during the, during the whole rest of the 19, 1943. On every ground, military and political, I deplored this prospect. The Russians were fighting every day on their enormous front, and their blood flowed in a torrent. Were we then to keep over a million and a half fine troops and all their terrific air and naval power idle for nearly a year? Uh, boy, you guys feel this, this tension? I mean, it makes sense if you're Great Britain and America. It's like, well, let Russia expend its, its strengths and deplete the Germans, because there was a turn of the tide here, which I have not covered yet, and I don't want to give anything away but it's called Stalingrad. It's going to be a turn of the tide in the Eastern Front as well, where Russia is actually gonna to begin to get the upper hand. So in the American-British mindset, you could say, well, they're doing pretty well right now, and they're eating up German troops. So they're actually weakening Germany by the day. We could begin to build up our strength here. Now, it's hard not to think this way as an American Christian. There are those that are expending themselves. There's weaker brothers out there. There's a church that's persecuted out there. But you know, that's their ground, okay? That's their calling. Our calling is here. And so we can build up our strength, and then maybe one day when we're really, really, really strong and we have a whole bunch of extra time, we can give to them. Instead, this Churchill mindset is very interesting. He has an ethical dilemma. It's like, I cannot have a million and a half ready soldiers and do nothing with them. We must do something. His appeal is that they help their brother in arms, somehow, some way. So, WED Enterprises, uh, this is a, a unique study which is gonna seem like totally off track of what, I'm just gonna put my foot in the water with it. WED Enterprises, Walt Elias Disney Enterprises. Okay, now I'm not uh, trying to say you need to go to Disneyland. I'm not trying to promote anything. I'm saying this is just fascinating. In history, Disney is going to form this uh, to build his parks. And as a result, in development of parks, he is going to gather this team, this strength of Imagineers is what he called them, to build environments like Disney World and Epcot just in and of themselves and then Tokyo Disney uh, is, is like, are so revolutionary. Never has there been a development like this. They have their own power plants. They, have, they are building their own cities. And it is like state of the art. And so when they finish with these projects, there's this sense of burden within this organization, all, the, all these different people, to say, why do we have such strength? Because we could just sit on our billions or we could 
invest it and begin to help develop things for other countries. For We could actually use this to help people around us. It's a fascinating thought, but it's the same mindset that they had to create all of this strength and novel invention to create their parks because that's what makes a Disney park fun. Is it's unusual, it's, it's intriguing, it's fascinating, it's, it's revolutionary. And so if it's not revolutionary, it's not Disney. And so that's their mindset. But now they have this whole team and they have nothing to do. You know that when they finished Epcot, which is a whole story in of itself, they finished Disney World in, uh, in Orlando, then they finished Epcot, they had no vision. They had nothing to do next. Which is the way some of us are too. We, we make it out of a season of extreme expenditure where it's just like we're pouring out for Christ and we get done with that and we actually don't know what we're doing with all this grooming, all this maturity, all this gray hair we just got out of this whole season, what are we supposed to do with it? And so in our lives, it's very, very important to recognize the enemy wants to bait us towards something called retirement. We're, I'd love everyone to study the word of God and try and find that idea in it. Strange, but you're not gonna find it. It is a very interesting cultural concept that has crept in, which is you grow mature, you get wise, and then you keep it all to yourself. It's the exact opposite of how the kingdom of heaven works. You are given strength so that you can give it. It's actually the inverse of that. So the reason at, in your elder years you have such strength, such maturity, such wisdom, such foresight, such insight into the behavior of people, behavior of nations, whatever your use is going to be, is not so that you can just sort of sit on your duff and you know, get off in your boat and float along uh, in the, uh, some beautiful crystal clear waters in the tropics. It's so that you can give of the strength that you have. It's a flip on the very idea of why we live what we live out. And so it's interesting because you have this idea that is, I mean, Winston Churchill is propagating it. In a strange way, he's actually saying, guys, we cannot just take it easy. We can't retire right now and let Russia, uh, Soviet Russia fight our battles for us. We need to rise up and help our weaker brother right now with the strength that we have. So I'm calling this the responsibility of the strong. This is just a concept that comes out of, if you study uh, Disney and their history, you recognize that they feel an ethical burden of being the most brilliant, the most innovative, to actually leverage that, not just to build up their own kingdom, but to uh, serve with it. So whether or not that, uh, hopefully it doesn't make it sound like I'm supporting Disney, who has some very uh, unfortunate uh, things that it, it is supporting nowadays. So let me just break out five key principles that are at play in this storyline, okay? Which I think I, I would love, I'm gonna bring each one of them to the surface. Number one, the brother in need. Number two, seek another's wealth. Number three, invest the strength you have, don't hoard. Number four, the weapons are mighty. And number five, the fear of God. Okay, now I'll go into each one of these. But there are five key things that I see happening in this, which is why this stands out to me. It stands out in the whole flow of World War II because if you were to sort of get in the mind of Eric Ludi, I'm skipping so many things, even though it's, I mean, I'm on episode 52 and I'm only in 1943. You'll notice that I don't go into the battles. I don't go into always the strategy of the battles of how they were fought. 
I don't go into a lot of weapons. I mean, I, I dabble in it every now and then. There are certain things that stand out to me, and they're the things that I am always, as I'm studying this, I'm saying, God, train my hands for war. Teach me how to utilize the strength I have effectively. Teach me how to exhort the body of Christ so that we are effective right now in this battle that we are in. And so as a result, this strange thing, this appeal of Churchill stands out to me, that he is burdened for his brother in arms. And that's a critical thing for me because I recognize that it's so easy to think about our own issues, our own problems, our own bank account. Our own bank account is oftentimes way lower than we want it, and as a result, we don't really have a lot of time to think about someone else's bank account. And yet, what you're going to see in the kingdom of heaven is God's actually going to tap us on the shoulder and say, I'd like you to think about their bank account. It's like, God, I can't think about their bank account. Look at my bank account. He says, I'll think about your bank account. You think about their bank account. Could you imagine if we actually did that? If we thought about everyone else's bank account and let God think about ours? Something's very uncomfortable about that. So let's go through each one of these. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 is going to talk about the brother in need. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So now I'm going to give you a World War II flare or like flip on this. So look at this. But whoever has a million and a half soldiers and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, Great Britain and America actually have, that's just Great Britain. And America has even more. So they have the resource to do something right now. And so in their tactical planning, they need to consider that. The next principle is seek another's wealth. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, that's going to be a King James translation of it. The reason I'm bringing it out is just because it creates great internal turmoil uh, to have that word wealth used there. Typically, it's going to be translated well-being, okay? But let's read it with the King James word in there because I think it has a, an impact. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's wealth. Uh, okay, I don't know if you guys recognize that that flies in the face of the way we naturally pop out of our mother's womb. We are bent towards seeking our own toys, our own territory, our own resource. We learn the word without ever being taught it, mine. No one teaches a baby the word mine. Could you imagine uh, a parent's like, I want you to say this back, mine. No, you don't teach a baby the word no or mine and they gather it in. Strangely, they just like, whatever language they speak, they pop out of the womb and they're like clawing for those two words and they figure them out somehow, some way. They're hot wired for it because we, are, we have a self-bent and as a result, we seek our own, and we don't care about another's wealth. It's like, that's their business. Why would I concern myself with them? However, I don't mind if you stick in the word well-being. The same concept is true, that we say, God, could you take care of me so I could turn outward and take care of others? 
Christianity is an outward turn, which means we have to risk our own resource, which means we have to risk our own health, which means we have to risk our own well-being and trust that God will care for it. So what you see is Churchill bringing this up. This is a principle at play. First of all, the brother in need. And the second one, it's like, yes, let's, let's help Stalin. You could almost imagine the closed, all the things that aren't written in the memoirs. It's like Roosevelt and Churchill looking at each other and smirking and going, can you believe we're helping Stalin? Of all the people, I mean, both of them are animately opposed to communism. And yet they know that he is their ally and that he needs them and they have a common foe in Hitler and the Nazis. This, Stalin wasn't trying to you know, invade countries. He was being invaded. Now, I'm not gonna defend Stalin at all. Believe me, this would be a really hard one for me. I'm really glad I'm not living in this time and I'm not Hitler, or Hitler. I'm glad I'm not Hitler, yes, I'll finish that sentence. I'm glad I'm not Churchill or Roosevelt in this. This would be a very difficult thing. Let no one seek his own, but each one in the other's wealth. So this one is Luke 12, 48, and the, the principle is invest the strength you have, don't hoard. You're going to see at the very beginning of COVID-19, you're going to see a behavior pattern spike. If you were looking at a chart, whenever there seems to be a shortage of something, people hoard. It is a self-bent, it is a self-interest point. And so you'll notice in the church, there was a lot of us that were having tough time knowing what to do. Do I, do I buy the toilet paper if it's on the shelf? Because then you feel sort of bad, <laughs> but you do need toilet paper. It used to be totally normal. I mean, aren't you guys glad that we're semi back to normal with what's on the shelves? Because that was like, it was stressful. I remember this one time I was walking through and I, I needed toilet paper. I may have eight people in my home. You know, you can only last so long, right? And so in the shelves are, are full of toilet paper. It was probably early in the morning. They just stocked them. And this one guy who is probably like me, we were both like moving towards the same one and he was like, no, after you. And I'm like, no, 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 after you. It's like both of us are trying to go out of our way to say, look, I'm not trying to hoard. (laughs) I'm really desiring, I need it, but I don't want to hoard it. I'm not trying to just get the extra amount so I stack my entire room full of it uh, just in case we run out in the world. Some people did that. And so, As a result, this idea of hoarding is very, very dangerous. There's something that we're supposed to do with the strength we have, and that is we're supposed to invest it. Jesus is basically saying in in 2020 language, look, I've given you toilet paper so that you can give it to others. He has given us strength so that we can share it, not so that we can hoard it for ourselves, even at risk of losing what we have. And I, I know many of us went through the, uh, the whole gymnastics routine of what happens if we run out of toilet paper? Okay, and some people Googled it. That was a common Google search at the time. Is there like different ways you can create toilet paper? This was like a, a weird crisis that we had, but it shows something in the soul of men. It demonstrates that there is a vulnerability towards self-bent. So Luke 12, 48 says, everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So if you remember Jesus' parables, he is going to talk about entrusting talents, minas, and then he's going to measure these stewards based on how they handle that which they're entrusted. If they hoard it, 
If they hold on to it, if they bury it, wrap it in a napkin and bury it in the ground, which is like a weird uh, statement, then it is going to be removed from them. When you hold on to something, you actually lose it. When you give up that something that God gives you, because it's a spiritual something, it's called grace. It's God's gift. And when you give it to others, it's interesting, but it increases. And so you actually, get this, get more by giving than by hoarding. And this is a kingdom principle. What you're going to see is Winston Churchill is actually going to find greater victory in World War II by aggressively giving what he has instead of hoarding it. He is going to risk everything for his brother, and as a result, he is going to become stronger in battle. Fascinating observation because we, we have World War II history to prove it. We are at a juncture where he has won one battle now. Out of all of World War II, in other words, there's nothing in his understanding that says, oh, everything has changed, I'll never lose a battle again. Does that make sense? He still has to live it. He still has to walk through all these battles. Now, he won't lose another battle, but he doesn't know that yet. And so he has to make a choice. With one victory, he is going to expend his strength that he just gained in that victory. Now he is going to begin to invest it. I like it. So the weapons are mighty. This is another key principle. In other words, the, the, the weaponry that Great Britain and America have are so powerful, and if they were to wield it effectively together, it's unstoppable, which is going to be proven true. So 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The weapons that we have been given are superpowered. They're nuclear. If we hoard them, if we hold on to these things and we don't swing our sword, we don't allow our million and a half soldiers to actually go and do the work, this world will remain as it is. So yes, maybe our bank account will be stable. Yes, maybe we will be healthy and we will grow old and have our grandkids around us the way that we have always envisioned that it should be for us with a white picket fence. And yet, our great enemy, our great foe, will not have been dealt with. This is a tension that we all face, and that is we either consider our own livelihood, our own comforts, our own future, or we give that up and we think about God. And we say, God, I have one life, it's yours. These are tensions that we face, all of us face it. When you're in the American culture, it's all the more difficult because all the Christians around you are thinking about their own estate and their own future. And I'm not saying that there isn't an eye for both, where you care for your own and you deal with first things first, you make sure that your kids are fed and dressed. I'm not saying that you ignore those things. But there is an emphasis in life of being outward as opposed to being inward. And the devil is always trying to get us to go in the wrong direction and put more emphasis on the inward than on the outward. And so what I want us to do today, just afresh, is to turn that dial or that knob or that flip, flip that switch in the direction of outward and say, yes, Lord, I agree with you. And when you go through that process, what, what's always good to do is take every little thing in your life and set it before him and say, this belongs to you. I recognize that.
it's not mine. And so I'll go through that process uh, periodically. It probably should be daily, you know, if you think about it. But it's like, okay, my marriage, my children, my ministry, my church, my house, my cars, my clothes, my health, my resource, my talents, all of these things, they need to find their way into that outward mode. This is not for me. You could use your strength and ability to build yourself up and to look really good and to be strong in this world. And the world may applaud, and yet to give up your life and to give it to Jesus and to let it be spent for him is the highest form of living. Finally, as far as the principles that are on the table in this, the fear of God. I'm just going to give you a quick overview of what it says in Proverbs uh, when it says the fear of the Lord is, does this or, or is this, okay? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That's Proverbs 8, 13. It's the beginning of wisdom, 9, 10. It prolongs life, that's 10, 27. And there is a strong confidence in it, 14, 26. And then the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, and I capitalized life there. I figured that would only be appropriate. And that's Proverbs 14, 27. It's the instruction of wisdom, that's 15, 33. And by it, one departs from evil, 16, 6. So what you're going to see here, if I can describe this. Now, I can't speak for Winston Churchill's soul to tell you the, the measure of heat that he had in his devotion to God. I know that he believed in God. I know he believed the word of God was, in fact, the word of God. But, you know, beyond that... I can only hazard guesses. I really can't speak to that. He doesn't talk a lot about that uh, sort of thing. That was a very private matter to a, a Brit uh, in those days. And so I don't know where he stands. And he had some behaviors that I wouldn't want to encourage. Usually it had to do with uh, consumption of things and what he stuck in his mouth, you know, big, huge cigars and puffed around. And then he, you know, he just, he didn't live the life I would encourage you to live. But at the same time, there are attributes to him that are highly irregular in the world. And they were attributes that showed this ethic of heaven. They showed a mindset of what I would call the fear of God. In other words, he recognized that he was highly responsible before God for how he stewarded what he was entrusted. If he was given this position, he needs to handle it well, which is what the Proverbs are about. It's a king talking to another king of how to rule a nation. So he is over nations in this situation. Because he's the prime minister of Great Britain in this situation, there are so many that are dependent upon him. There's so many weakened countries, so many countries that have been invaded, and he feels obligated to go in and not take over those countries, but to kick out the evil and let them have their country back. Very interesting, because he could have leveraged his position to take these countries. Like if he's going to invade France, France gave France up. So if he's going to kick the Germans out, hey, why doesn't Great Britain take over France? Why doesn't Great Britain take over Italy? Why doesn't Great... But that's not the way he's thinking. He wants to give Italy back to the Italians. He wants to give France back to the French. He wants to give the Balkans back. He wants to give Czechoslovakia back. He wants to give Poland back to those that live there that have, were running it before this evil came, came in. Very fascinating. His ethics are very different than what most strong men would ever think. He's not thinking about his own gain. He wants to purge evil out of this society. So, a question. I remember this one teacher got up in front of, uh, I was in a class in a missionary school 
oh, 29 years ago. It was a long time ago. And she said, the fear of the Lord is to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. And then she paused, and then she asked a question. I want to ask each one of you, do you hate that which God hates? Then she said, I want you to think of that one sin that you have the highest propensity to go towards in your point of weakness. And I want to ask, do you hate that sin? It was interesting because I was caught red-handed in that situation because my honest answer, which I, you know, that's a key thing, is to be honest with yourself when you're asked a question like that. It doesn't help at all to dupe yourself. Was I actually love my secret sin. I just try not to do it because I know God doesn't like it. That's not the fear of God. And as a result, it doesn't lead you into that life of strength and the purging of evil. Because you have to gain God's temperament towards evil and towards sin. You must see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You must hate it as God hates it. And then you must love that which God loves. And so this is a process that the Spirit of God works inside of us. This is what the Proverbs is about. If you desire that life of wisdom, then this fear of God, this change of temperament where you are warm towards the heart of God and you are cold towards the working of the enemy, you have a chill towards all that is dark and you have a warmth towards all that is light. This is something that the church of Jesus Christ has lost. Many of us have grown up in a church system that doesn't have that. And so when we are hearing Churchill's thinking patterns here, it actually makes us feel uncomfortable because we sort of love our selfishness. We just try not to be selfish. We love our bents and our comforts and the things that actually God is going to say that's harmful to you, but we love it. We just try and keep it at a minimum. And so we're just better than the rest of the culture. Instead of saying, God, I despise that which you despise. I want that eradicated from my life. I want it removed from the church of Jesus Christ. We must be strong for such a time as this. So Eric, do you hate what God hates? It could also say, Eric, do you love what God loves? And that's a key question. And ever since that question was launched and I heard it and I was absorbing it, I have never forgotten that. It has had a huge impact on my life. God, I desire to love what you love and I want to hate what you hate. This is a spiritual work though. It is something that the Spirit of God has to move in and begin to change our thinking. It's called the renewal of the mind where we begin, we have a reset button that is pushed and now I am going to appraise this based on God's word instead of on my thoughts or my feelings. When you look at things through your feelings, I could ask all sorts of questions. Would you rather live in a ditch or in a nice house? Of course you're gonna, a nice house. Would you rather drive a car that falls to pieces you know, every few days and needs to be repaired or would you rather have a really nice car, a nice car? In other words, I know how we're all bent. We're all bent towards ease, towards comfort. The kingdom of heaven isn't bent towards misery. That's not the, the point. The kingdom of heaven is bent towards outward, towards sacrifice, towards humility. And as a result, it is going to incur more inconvenience. That's what we're afraid of. We're afraid of giving up 
are convenient, to adopt inconvenience. And that's where the rubber meets the road for all of us. We have a victory, and we need to reason out of that victory of what happens next. God says, all right, we won in North Africa, technically the way it says, we won at the cross, all right? Death is defeated. Sin has no more power. What are you going to do with it? What's next? Are you going to take that and sit on it and go idle with your million and a half soldiers? You have weapons of warfare that are not of this world. They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. So you can mumble and groan when you watch Fox News about all the strongholds out there, or you could start wielding your weaponry and tear them down. We are the instrument that God has chosen, not the government. The church is the instrument that God has chosen to destroy and to demolish the enemy's workings in this world. And when the church rises up and begins to do what it is commissioned to do, the world will be changed. A plea for justice, Psalm 82, 3 through 4. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. All of Europe at this time, in 1943, at this exact moment, North Africa is now freed of German occupation. But did you know that if we stopped right there and said, pause, and I put a map up, I should have had it here, put a map up of Europe, the whole thing would be German occupied, except for Switzerland and Sweden. That's it, and, and Spain. The whole thing is occupied by Hitler, all the way into Russia a great deal. So it's just like this massive glob of evil that has taken over Europe. Free them from the hand of the wicked. This is Churchill's mindset, which is why you see me fascinated by him. I'm watching him function, not necessarily as a spiritual man, but as a practical military man, the way we as the church are supposed to function in the spiritual side. And I'm watching his doggedness. I'm watching his reasoning. He's like, we cannot allow that to stand there and boast. Look at all these countries that are being, look, he's, he's killing all the Jews in all these countries. You know that Churchill, if I could do a study on it, and I, I've been trying to compile it over the past, I don't know how long it's been, a year, of the Churchill response to the Jews is so intriguing to me. The Jews still to this day are going to consider Churchill one of their greatest advocates in history. Like he was an Esther for them. And that's just fascinating because most of us don't know that. We don't think that. But somehow, Churchill, almost like different political leaders we know today, that we don't even know if they're Christian, have this strange bent of care for the Christian community. Strange. Just like Churchill had for the Jews. The God of justice, Psalm 72, 4. He will bring justice to the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. What is his chosen instrument? The church. This is the one. Now, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Our battle isn't Winston Churchill's battle. Our battle is the spiritual powers behind all of this. King Solomon says in Proverbs 3, 27 through 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you have it, when you already have it with you. So I think for each of us, we need to evaluate as we come out of our North African victory, 
as we enter into this battle of 1943, or for us, 2020, how are we supposed to use the resource we have? How do we springboard off of this victory of the cross effectively to deliver a death blow to the enemy in this hour? The million soldiers cannot remain idle. Father, I pray that you would make this practical. Lord, whatever is needed in us, I know that for me personally, I have always desired an exercise with truths like this instead of just a theoretical uh, encouragement. Lord, we as the church must know how to implement, must know how to activate, and I ask for that grace, that we would be mobilized, that we would not just fill our heads with truths, but that our lives would live out those truths. Lord, we ask for that grace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.